Welcome to the Superhero of Love podcast. I am Bridget Fonger. I wrote a book called Superhero of Love, Heal Your Broken Heart and Then Go Save the World. That book is going to be out in January 2019, but I didn't want to wait until that time to start talking to superheroes of love. And guess what? Here's the news. You are a superhero of love. And through talking to other superheroes like yourself, tapping into that little superhero inside of you, I'm hoping that you and I and all of us start feeling more and more like superheroes of love, meaning that we love and are loved more than ever before. So welcome. Let's get this party started. Welcome, superheroes. We are here today with psychologist and relationship consultant, James Crichton. I just read his book, Loving Through Your Differences, Building Strong Relationships from Separate Realities, which just came out in February. And I am totally in love with this book. The book was really primarily written to empower couples. But I have to tell you, I am not in a couple right now. And I learned so much about it. And I can't wait to be in a couple so I can practice what I learned. But I also, my main point here is that you don't have to, I don't have to wait to be in a couple to practice this stuff because loving through our differences happens in all relationships. So I'm so excited to start working on everything that I learned. I just want to say, welcome, James Crichton. I'm so happy you're here. Thanks. Good to be with you today. And actually, James is not here in my house. James is in a way, way better place than my house, which is he's in Hawaii. I love that you live in Hawaii. When did you move to Hawaii? About four years ago. Oh, fantastic. We, it, uh, we had actually tried it once in the 80s, and I could uh, earn a living from here, but not here. And uh, now I'm able to, to to be here and enjoy it. Yay. I'm so happy. So when you say we, let's talk about the we. Um, the we, one of whom is you and one of whom is the woman that you um, dedicate your book to. So tell us about your... your... Well, I, I've been uh, married to my wife, Maggie, for about 50, 53 years, it is, actually. And uh, you know, most couples fight... And I think we fought a lot. And so I had a personal stake in trying to figure out how to, how to improve this and make it not, not so hurtful. And uh, everything is field tested, both the, uh, the good and the bad. <laughs> and I, I had plenty of examples to choose from when I went to say this is what not to do. I love that you say field tested because I can just imagine like all the cars that you crashed getting to the Bentley that your marriage now is. Well, my, my wife sometimes does not think it's a Bentley. <laughs> 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 but uh, we have uh, 53 years, I guess we're going to make it. Oh, my God. That's so beautiful. Yeah. So there are so many wonderful things in here, but I have to say that. Um, I'm going to kind of start at the beginning and move through the book because there's so many things I feel like there's so many things that I want to touch on in this short time that we have together that I feel like that makes the most sense. And then people will get a sense of how the book moves and, and, um, and how you deepen your understanding of, of working through differences. So the first thing that I want to say is you talk right up front about fear 
and how we all fear conflict and we fear differences. And I love this one thing that you said, the idea that if people disagree with you, you and you feel like they don't love you because they disagree with you, that that's a very childish perspective of a disagreement. And I have to say that as old as I am, I still I still have this uh, gut reaction to somebody disagreeing me as maybe not necessarily that they don't love me, but there's a disconnect, like an abyss just formed between us. Oh no, they don't agree on that thing. Uh, let's talk about, t- talk to us about, about how we can manage that, what, what feels like an abyss um, and that childlike perspective. Well, actually what I found was that uh, most of us, when we first get in a relationship, what draws us to each other is, that we we're sort of alike. We we feel you know good about her or him because by God they they got their head on straight. Right. <laughs> and and then suddenly we find out they they disagree and uh, they don't have uh, same feelings about things and so on. And uh, one of the main reasons that I wrote the book is I wanted to concentrate on those kinds of conflicts that occurred because people did literally have a different reality about uh, an emotional reality about event. And uh, you can see it at the simplest level. Uh, my wife and I go to a movie, uh, I think it was delightful. Uh, she was bored to tears. She doesn't like car chases. <laughs> uh, we, uh, if afterwards we get out in the lobby and the first thing I say is, uh, what a great movie. Uh, pretty soon we're going to be up to what an adolescent I am to enjoy a movie like that and soon so forth. Whereas, uh, because it's inevitable that other people, because of who they are and how they were raised and their experiences and their religion and their thought processes that they've gone through, will look at a situation and can have entirely different emotional reactions. It's a fact that I was amused by the movie. It's a fact she was bored by the by the movie, and that's just the way life is. I mean, it's uh, that's kind of the starting point, and so on. And so, if you're threatened by that, you're going to spend a lot of your life feeling threatened. Mm, right. Good, clear way to say that. Right. So. Um, I wanted particularly to concentrate on those kinds of conflicts uh, because I, 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 see, I see them happening where two people experience something different and then get in an argument about whose reality is right. And uh, the other person's a bad person for not having you, you know, my reality and, and we're off and running. Yeah. That my reality is right. Your reality is wrong. Um, I love how you, how you throughout the book you encourage people to create a shared separate re- that they have you have these separate realities but then can you can you come together and create a shared reality yeah that's the i i think it was uh, i can't remember who it was that said that the in any relationship there's a me and a you and a we and part of the game and in, in conflict of any sort is to protect the we uh, so that when the conflict is over, there's something to go back to. And uh, so a lot of the behaviors in here are behaviors not just for resolving the conflict, but for maintaining the relationship so that when the conflict is over, you still have a relationship. Plus, I think that some of the bigger conflicts in life 
uh, only get resolved through a lot of sharing and sometimes sharing over several years. Well, I want to also talk, the concept that I love that you um, dive deeply into is the, the idea of the family myth trap. Yeah, most of us, most of us have adopted a family myths about who we are and, and how one's supposed to behave and so forth and so on. And including rules about how you handle conflicts. And what my wife and I found was that uh, we'd come into a conflict and I had my rules about how, how you handled conflict. And if she didn't follow them, she was clearly a bad person <laughs> and vice versa. And what we found is we had to, we literally had to agree on rules, ground rules, uh, in order to, to break that cycle and so on. So there, again, it was his rules, her rules, our rules. Uh, and particularly, we had to do that in relationship to uh, behaviors that make fights escalate. Uh, behaviors like blaming and accusing and uh, escalating the situation by moving it from the initial conflict level to it's not just you're messy, you're uh, irresponsible and the issue gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so there were a lot of behaviors in escalation where we had to agree, we, we just don't do that. And uh, so like like one is using other people as ammunition. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not just me that feels this way. Your mother said, or the, the neighbors took a vote. Right. <laughs> We, we actually put you on trial last week and you lost. <laughs> yeah, right. So the idea is when, when there's a ground rule set and I violate the rule, she reminds me I violated it. And I grudgingly had said, yes, but I understand the reason for the rule enough that I'll, that I'll back down and uh, stop claiming other people or expanding the issue or all the other behaviors we engage in that cause fights to escalate. Yeah, I mean, when you were talking about the um, the movie, I, I always think that, and I remember in my past too, that something like that that's so simple that you normally wouldn't attack the other person for, like the fact that you thought that movie was great is, you know, attack worthy. But sometimes it feels like in relationships, we just use it as an excuse to get to something else. Like really what I want to yell at you about is this other thing. So I'm going to choose, the, this is my venue, you know, <laughs> to attack you. And, and I remember, I, I feel like I remember on a cellular level, like feeling like relief that I could finally say this other stuff. You know, it had nothing to do about the one thing, but it's like this, this sense of I, almost like a empowerment, right? That you've, 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 you've let it out. You've let that fireball out, uh, which is just such a, an incredibly false sense of power, obviously, and not loving in any way, shape or form. <laughs> well, also the recipient doesn't know what to do with it because it's so out of proportion to whatever the original situation was. They, yeah, that, now, now one thing about going to the movie and talking about the movie, if I say I really enjoyed that movie, that's kind of a fact. I mean, mm -hmm. Go anywhere. And she says, I, I was just bored to tears and so on. Those are both facts. If I say it was a good movie and she says it was an adolescent movie, on and on and on, then we're in trouble. So two feelings 
don't necessarily contradict each other. It's mm, that's great. For us to have the different feelings about the same stimulus. So, yeah. But two judgments will contradict each other. And so whether or not you turn it into a, a big all-out conflict or not and so on, it's harder to do if you stay to feelings rather than to judgments. I, if, you, if, if you were really dumping six months worth of stuff, you probably almost instantly went into judging, evaluating, blaming, accusing, and off you are, off to the races. Off to the, the scary races, yeah. Um, you have a whole chapter on avoiding escalation, which is what we're just talking about right now. And there's a great section here, it says, and you were just talking about the me, you, and the we, and you wrote, we, th- we threaten the we because four things happen during escalation. We start seeing the other person as an adversary or the enemy. We lose touch with the fact that we love the other person. We may have been very loving just an hour ago, but right now we hate their guts. During escalation, both partners become less willing to listen so true. Oh my God. And we become less willing to expose our deeper feelings and sometimes suspend communication altogether. I've done a fair amount of consulting on public issues, public conferences, And uh, sometimes I will have interviewed both sides before we get together face to face. And I'll see the two sides as pretty close to being able to find an agreement. You know, I wow. can see that. They get together and they start into the blame and the accusations and the judgments and so on. And they just drive each other further and further apart. By the end of the meeting, they're the last person I'm ever going to talk to. Wow. And it's you, you can see that, and their positions just get harder and tougher. You know, it's, it's like, you know, it, it, it moves to uh, uh, if you're going to, if you're, you're going to say, I'm going to engage in a cover-up. I'm not going to talk to you. Right. <laughs> so what do you do in that case? So before they've come together, you can see the opening. And then they come together and they close all the openings down. So what do you do in that, in that case? Well, as a, the behaviors that cause that to happen are things like blaming and accusing and so on. So if you're facilitating a meeting with somebody like that, you, you, you work at getting them to communicate feelings, not judgments. Mm. And uh, or, you, or you help help them lay out what their underlying concerns are and so forth. Uh, but I, I can even remember one, one meeting in desperation where I had the two groups break off into small groups and they were to come up with lists of adjectives about the other person, like pig-headed and so forth and so on. <clears throat> they came back about an hour later, and they had identical lists. No. Yeah. <laughs> at least at least 90% of the stuff was on both pages. And, and even they could see what was happening. There was a lot of giggling going on as they prepared the list, but even more kind of stunned stuff when they saw how, how the lists were the same. And they could see that it was kind of, the, the positions were just driving each other further and further into extreme and so on. And actually that one, one of my great successes, we uh, were able to agree on a, a new government agency that uh, represented all of the cities in the county and uh, 
managed waste for the entire county and so on. And it came out of calling each other every nasty name they could. What a story. Where was that? Are you allowed to reveal? In Southern California. Wow. Exactly where I am. Oh, my God. And this is just bringing home the point that this book is so applicable to any conflict resolution and to any relationship. And every relationship hits a little snag here and there. I, I literally I have a fairly new relationship with somebody just the other day. Um, it wasn't a snag at all, but in my heart, it felt like a snag. And then I realized it was like the, my childish reaction was that's a snag. And then I quickly, the adult Bridget um, said, that's not a snag. That's just, you know, you guys, you guys see this differently. She saw something, she had a little bit of a, a punitive wagging finger, you know, angle on a, something that had happened. And I had a, oh, that's just, you know, that's just people being people kind of <laughs> kind of reaction. But it felt at first, it felt like the judgment that it, it seemed like judgment to me coming from her end, that that judgment was, it hurt my heart for, and it wasn't even directed at me, but it hurt my heart. And I was like, the child in me was like, I want to run away from that, that somebody that's going to hurt my heart. Right. And, you know, that was just a nanosecond, luckily, but it's, it's so amazing that that little kid's um, uh, immediate reactions are so right at the surface at this advanced age that I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now you could, in a situation like that, communicate to the other person that I'm worried that if we come across a certain way that this is what will happen, which would give the other person the data without you freaking out completely and maybe even without their, their freaking out. Uh, so it, right. it can be handled, but you do. And, and we, we all have these ingrained conflict st- resolution styles. Uh, John Gottman, who's done a lot of research on couples communication, talks about distancers and pursuers. And what he means by that is a pursuer is someone who, when they're upset by something or anxious or fearful, uh, wants to deal with it right now. I got to, got to address it. Got to go. That's me. I've got to talk. So, so Mm -hmm. a distancer's reaction is to want to get pulled back from, think about it, ponder it, work on it internally and so on. And particularly guys seem to be uh, afflicted with, with, uh, afflicted. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, my wife and I had it. I, I was, I was raised in a family where conflict just wasn't done. I mean, they didn't think I could tell uh, the adults were itchy about something, but I couldn't, didn't know what it was. And the, uh, so I was raised very much as a, a distancer. My wife was raised as pursuer and she, uh, they didn't always resolve things well, but they, you heard about it <laughs> at, at multiple decibels often and so forth. And so we had to negotiate some of that stuff where she she was upset now, and so she wanted to talk now. And I felt controlled and dictated too, and so on, because she was insisting we had to talk about it now. Uh, one of the things we discovered is if we would negotiate on a time and place, we would deal with it. Like, you know, I'll talk after the ball game or something. Uh, the funny thing that would happen is as soon as we had gotten over the control business about 
whose time we were going to do it in. I would usually probably say, oh, the heck, let's talk about it now and get it over with. Yeah. Uh, it was no longer a fight over control. It was now, uh, I was as anxious to get it resolved as she was. Oh, wow. So the distancing part of the distancing was your aversion or feeling like, not aversion to control, but a feeling like people were trying to control you? Well, that she was insisting that I had to talk about whatever was upsetting her right when it was upsetting her, which is in a way she's she's controlling the place and time and and everything, whereas I wanted to get away and think about it and do it in my time and so forth. And once that issue had been negotiated, we agreed on the time we were going to talk, it was like that that whole thing just vanished. And then it was, well, how do we get it resolved quickly? Oh, that's beautiful. I love, there's, this is a great quote from your book, because you were just talking about those family patterns of resolving conflict. You wrote, the only escape from disagreement over family rules is to agree on your own rules. So that's what you guys did. You set up your own rules for resolving conflict. Yeah, I think in fact, the way the rule was worded first is I didn't have to talk with her about things she was upset right when she wanted it, but I did have to do it within 24 hours. (laughs) That was the way, that was the way we set up the rule. That was your compromise. I won't do it immediately, but I'll do it within 24 hours. Yeah, but once we'd agreed on that, then I usually didn't, within 24 minutes, you know. Oh my God, that's hilarious. You talk about reframing weakness as a strength. One of the things that you do that I found delightful about your book is is taking a negative and reframing it as a positive. Like that's what you do throughout the book. We don't have to look at these, we don't have to look at disagreements as a negative thing. We don't have to have fear when there is conflict. And reframing weakness as a strength is one of the look at the look at the bright side of life. So let's talk about that. Well, the whole idea of reframing is that uh, we've all learned ways of thinking about ourselves and judging our behaviors and so forth. Most of it learned from parents or other significant adults in our our background. We've usually internalized that so that when we we engage in self-talk, and by that I mean all of us as we go through life find ourselves commenting on our behavior. I can't avoid it. I blow that or I, I, I'm going to screw this up because I just can't handle this kind of situation. I'm, all of this stuff talks running all, all the time and so forth. And so what, what we're trying to do is change the self-talk so, to the point that we can, it will explain the behavior in such a way that we have more options. Now, let me give you an example. I had a, uh, a guy, guy was in one of my classes and he loved to go hunting with the guys. And whenever he got home, his wife would start, uh, did you do this? Did you go, did you go see her? Did you, you know, all kinds of, uh, which he interpreted as she's trying to control me and uh, she's, you know, being jealous and so forth and so on. And then getting such bad fights, it was getting so it wasn't worth even going hunting. But then he felt he'd feel resentment about that, and on and on and we go. Okay, so he learned to reframe that one is when I get home and she starts to question. What she's really saying is, 
I'm anxious and unsure where, where I stand with you. Mm-hmm. Worried about whether I'm loved and you know so forth. Mm. And when he started behaving towards her as he would towards somebody who was feeling insecure, then the whole situation began to, began to, to turn. Now that she was trying to control him was a possible explanation of her behavior. That she was insecure was an equally plausible explanation of her behavior. And it opened up a lot of alternative behaviors on his part that the first explanation didn't have. So so when we're talking about reframing, we're not trying to con ourselves into uh, something else. We're trying to understand the situation differently so that it opens up additional options. You know, I just realized when you were saying that, that when, uh, because most of my relationships have been, um, I've been the pursuer, pursuer and the man has been the distancer. And I just realized when you said what you just said, that in those moments where I wanted to pursue and I was like, You've, we have to talk about this right now. I can't move forward. I can't do my work. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do anything until we talk. Or that's how it feels like it's a survival thing. And I just realized that it's all about insecurity. Like in that moment, I feel like I have to, I'm throwing a, you know, a lasso around his neck so that I can keep him connected to me by that rope. You know, um, it's a really ugly thing to see in myself. Thank you so much for showing it to me. <laughs> <laughs> just, just love it when you throw trash in my face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I just, you know, like any time that we're, you know, I, I feel like any time that I've, lashed out at anybody in any relationship is about insecurity. It's about fear, about not knowing how loved I am in that moment. And and the irony of the thing is you're doing exactly what you think will help you get over your anxiety. Right. But when he withdraws, he's doing exactly what he thinks will help him handle his anxiety. Yes. Both both are engaging and it's kind of, you move forward, he steps back. You move forward, he steps back. You move forward. And uh, and then we walk off the cliff together. <laughs> yeah, right. He's just going backwards and I'm going forwards, walking off the cliff after yeah. him. I'm going to make you talk to me as we fly off this cliff. <laughs> <laughs> splash, splash. <laughs> yeah. Splash, splash, splash. That's so great. Um, <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. I love the section on the committee. Chapter 14 is, is titled, Who Speaks for Your Internal Committee? And the, and the subtitle, the, the note under the title, I should say, is get to know the different parts of your personality and get them talking to each other. I found such relief in this chapter. So t- let's talk about that. Well, I think you, it's easy, particularly if you're watching somebody else have a handle of conflict, that you'll see somebody who's usually kind of mild-mannered and reasonable and so forth gets in a conflict and suddenly becomes the most rigid by the numbers. You know, this is the way things have to be and so forth and so on. Yeah, you know, it's like a whole different personality. And uh, she's, she's freaking out and, uh, you know, getting screechier and screechier. And so forth. <laughs> it's like two different personalities. Well, the possibility is that that's quite literally true. That there's a, a, a sub-personality, if you will, or 
some therapists even think there are, are literally multiple personalities. Uh, but that the subpersonality, at least, that's the way that subpersonality copes with things. And when he starts feeling threatened, he gets super tight, rigid, bureaucratic, on and on and on. And, on. and she gets freakier and freakier and freakier. And uh, so it's, it's not even as if the two of them are the ones handling the conflict. Mm -hmm. Two different personalities are ending conflict. Right. That didn't go through a dating process, <laughs> those two personalities. <laughs> and they, they don't really know each other very well. <laughs> That's right. Nor do they want to. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, the idea is that you you need to get each of those subparts talking to each other. He he needs to let go of his authoritarian dictator, and she needs to let let go of the screech machine. Screech and, machine. Uh, and somehow or other, uh, let other parts of their personality in to handle the thing. Now the way some therapists had handled this is literally like family therapy, that they'll have the two parts of the self have a sit down and have a conversation. Uh, this is where the uh, the empty chair thing where you talk to the empty chair. Right. Uh, you know, and so what's in the empty chair is the part of the personality that shows up whenever you have a deep conflict. And it works except when you do it in front of you know, political conventions and things like that. Right. When you said empty well. chair, nobody nobody can say empty chair anymore without thinking of uh, Clint Eastwood. You said some years ago, I'm, I'm reading from your book, some years ago I had lunch with a psychotherapist I know after I'd shared some feelings about a situation. His question was, which member of the committee feels that way? <laughs> yeah. I love that. I love the concept of the committee. And I'm clinging to it like a vine in the jungle. Let's talk about that committee. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure it got him invited back to lunch again. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was an important insight. <laughs> <laughs> that, there were, that there were parts of me that uh, were, were reacting one way and other parts of me reacting entirely differently. And I had to somehow or other be able to to listen to all the parts to, if I was going to come up with a, a complete answer that sat, was satisfactory emotionally. I love that it's a committee, though, and that and then you talk about them as personalities. And, and obviously, we're not talking, I just want to say for any listener who's jumping to the conclusion that we're talking about multiple personality disorder, we're not talking about that. We're talking about these subsets of our personalities. But um, I love thinking of it as a as a committee because... Uh, it's like you can ask one of the committee members to to speak more loudly. There's something comforting about thinking of it like a committee. And, and facilitate the discussion. Yes, facilitate the discussion. Perfectly said. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. And you, you know that you're not really resolved until you've heard from everybody in the committee. Oh, that's good. And the other thing that's important, though, is each member of the committee is trying to contribute to the success of the thing. The fact that their behavior is totally dysfunctional and contradicts the behavior of everybody else in the committee is purely <laughs> coincidental. <laughs> That's like every committee you've ever been on. 
they're all trying all trying to help and they're all canceling each other out. That's so true. And that's the other thread throughout your book is that thing that you just said, which is that everybody's just doing their best, right? And the it's it's about, you know, uh taking all of those parts and and creating a creating peace and harmony in spite of all of that conflict inside your head and inside your heart and outside your body in the room with your beloved. Uh, and o- over time, you've had enough conversation with your beloved and also with the parts of self that, you know, think things do get better or at least some things get resolved and you move on to new ones. Because <laughs> uh, somehow it seems like handling conflict is just the inevitability of life. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite parts of the book is is the discussion about the myth. So understanding the myth of your your family of origin, understanding the myth of your beloved's family of origin or friends, family of origin, whoever you're having this conflict with. And then you give us the power to create a new family myth, come together and create something new. And that is my favorite part of your book. So let's talk about that. Well, I think the example I use in there is a a couple I saw who were trying to buy a new car and having an awful time trying to agree on what car they were going to And when you looked at it, what you found out was that uh, he came from an immigrant family for whom it was very important to show the world that they'd made it and that they'd they triumphed over all the adversity and they were now a success. She came from a working class family where the worst thing of all was to be above oneself. And so you spent an awful lot of time uh, doing this, doing the appropriate things in order to not be above oneself. In fact, she'd already kind of pushed the limits by going to college because where, where she came from, that was, you know, our, our people didn't do that thing. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he wanted to have, he wanted to buy a Mercedes because that would show the world that he had arrived. Uh, she was uncomfortable even sitting in a Mercedes. Mm. Uh, to her, it was pretentious and uh, you know, sh- sh- showing off and uh, so forth. And, and they had, before they could buy a car, they both felt good about. They just had to do a lot of talking about it. Now, in both cases, they both decided that the old family myth was kind of a trap. Mm. Uh, she, I mean, she, she'd already barely escaped the trap by going to college. And she could see that if she lived her whole life by doing, doing nothing that could rise above others, that she was not going to fulfill her whole, her whole potential. Uh, he, on the other hand, was being driven by having to show off his status all the time. And that, that gets to be a pain too. They both <laughs> both could actually uh, learn, uh, create create enough of a new myth that they could come together and uh, try out parts of themselves they hadn't tried out be- before because they didn't fit within the family myth. So, and and together they created something new, right? So it's like, okay, yours doesn't really work. Mine doesn't really work. Let's create something together that's brand new for us. And there has to be a little bit of an experimental attitude too, because you can come together and try to agree on something new, and lo and behold, it doesn't work either. <laughs> so, right. So you you try. Let's try this. Yeah. Let's, let's try it another way, and, 
and uh, but but you're thinking in terms of your your beliefs can actually trap you, and so the idea being, are there beliefs that explain life just as well as what I have believed in the past that I can use that will allow me to exp- experience more of myself? I have a friend who's there. Uh, everybody in the family um, is awakening to their own addiction and to their own level of addiction and where up to this moment they were not, they were not dealing with their addictions. And even though one of the family members almost died because of the addiction, they just put their heads in the sand and it's luckily it's the, the child that has awakened to her addiction first and is now awakening up the awakening the entire family which is which is such a blessing and a beautiful thing but that's one of the things like as you said with the pattern of oh we don't deal with conflict we don't have conflict our family doesn't have conflict our family doesn't have addiction i think that's that feels like one of the scariest things because it's like we have blinders on to it so we don't even know whether we have blinders on somebody has to come up to us and say hey would you like me to help you take off your blinders <laughs> so yeah. that you can see your head is in the sand <laughs> or, 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 or something worse yeah, the situation you're talking about where there's a whole family seems to be waking up that's a situation where having a third party neutral uh like a uh, experienced therapist or something like that could be quite helpful because uh, you need someone who's not part of the game. That's a really uh, good point. Uh, right. Everybody, if everybody's played the game for years, they they, they know all the all the fit. I, I mean, I've had this experience where I would get my first wife died, died quite suddenly, but before she died, I remember having some arguments where uh, I could remember them almost word for word. And when I got married again, I found myself having the same arguments almost word for word. How I could understand how I could do it word for word, but what I couldn't understand <laughs> is how she knew her. How they got the scripts, right? <laughs> Something about the way the game was being played, uh, the, 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 the dynamic was one that just recreated the whole scene over and over and over again. And so sometimes it does really help to have somebody being able to see the game, point out the game, uh, suggest alternatives, so forth and so on. And that's exactly what I suggested to the to her family therapy. And she was saying that she didn't think that her husband would possibly go into it. But I said, then you just get into therapy. And do you recommend in that case where everybody's heads were previously in the sand, do you recommend individual therapy and family therapy? Or what is your recommendation? My recommendation would be you start with the family therapist and let the family therapist give you some advice on whether you need individual therapy as well. The problem with the starting with the individual therapy, the advantage is you, you can get going. You don't have to sit around and the other person doesn't dictate what works for you and so on. Um, on the other hand, it, the individual therapy can become quite threatening to the person who doesn't go. Mm-hmm. And uh, and also can be hauled up and used in fights. You know, Doctor So and So says such and such and so, you know, which will just drive your husband up the walls. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and and will result in in uh, the uh, the partner being resentful of the therapy, re- resentful of the authority it plays in your life, and so forth. Uh, 
So you so, recommend even if one person in the family is refusing to go, just go and keep inviting them and see if eventually they'll come into the fold or? Yeah, I certainly would start with inviting them. Uh, if, if, if it helps for them to go first, I've seen that happen where they, they would go to the therapist first and get comfortable with the therapist. And, Good idea. And the, the, everybody's afraid the therapist is going to be on the other guy's side. Right, right. And, and so if, uh, if, I, if I go and get so I'm fairly comfortable with the therapist, then I'm not as likely to interpret anything he puts out as, that could be judgmental of me as being him taking sides separate and so on. Uh, but that's, that's, that's the, deep, the deepest fear is that the therapist will take the other guy's side. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's everybody's deep fear when they go into therapy with someone else. <laughs> Even when you go into therapy alone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, that's an excellent therapist joke. <laughs> um, one of the chapters is called Conflicts Over Values. And um, you have these great lines at the top of every chapter, which clarify in an instant what the chapter is about. And Conflicts Over Values says, look for the positive good that your partner supports, even when your partner opposes what you think is important. Well, what, what I have to take an example where the conflict is over how children are being raised. And one parent wants the child to be free and spontaneous and creative and so on. And the other parent feels they need some structure and some discipline and, you know, consistency and all those good getting things done virtues. Um, if you just the, the usual argument will be you're trying to turn our kid into an automaton and he's, you know, you're trying to make a hippie and on and on we go and so on. Where the truth is, if you look for what each partner's trying to accomplish, probably both people want the child to be free and spontaneous and joyful and creative and so on. And both people want the child to be disciplined enough to get things done and structured enough that you can, you know, achieve things in life and so forth and so on. And safe and safe too, right? Like, And, and so the, the difference is not that the other person's against what you stand for. The difference is that there's another value there and it's what weight or importance we give to this value versus the other one in this situation. So if you can see him as he's, He's concerned about there being able to be uh, self-controlling and disciplined and so on. And she's concerned about them being spontaneous and free. And so all of that's good. And so in some situations, one may be more important than the other, and you still got to talk that through. But it starts from a different place. If instead of seeing the other person as an opponent, you see them as putting greater emphasis on one value than the, than the one you're, you're supporting right then. So both, both of them are standing for something, and you need to know what that for is. Yeah, know what the for is. That's a good, that's a good line. And um, 
I think that's, that's a good note to end on because that's kind of a theme throughout the book that we feel like we're consciously working against each other and that's ever so rarely the case. We're all working for the greatest good um, for ourselves and for our we, but we trip on ourselves. We trip yeah. on our past. It comes back to the we. What can we do to strengthen the we uh, so that when the conflict is over, there's something to go back to? Mm, that's so beautiful. Okay, and I'm going to let you go back to your we, go back to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you want to say? Anything that you feel like we, we missed? Yes, I'd love to have some people go out and buy the book. Yes. And uh, it's available in all the major booksellers. Uh, Amazon gives you about a $5 discount. <laughs> Yay. So uh, f- feel free to buy it where, wherever you want and feel free to post comments about it and so on. Uh, and, your, but, and your website? Do you have, yes, your, jameslcrayton.com. jameslcrayton.com. And I'll put that in the podcast notes as well so they can click it with ease. Um, and I really love the book. And by the way, to the readers, we're not, um, we're not going into these parts of the book, but there are lots of little exercises and tips um, and uh, really concrete examples. Um, he, he, uh, James brought up many of the examples that are in here, but this, this wonderful, many, many um, examples of what you can do to come to a more loving and powerful and joyful place in your relationship, whatever that relationship is. Well, I really enjoyed talking with you. You too. Thank you, James. That was James L. Creighton, and you can find him at jameslcreighton.com. And if you liked this podcast, please go rate and review it, subscribe to it. It'll bring more superheroes of love into the fold, which can only be a really good thing. Check out James's book wherever you get your books. Thanks, everybody. Have a superhero day.